2: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
3: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour, known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is um, an author who joins me by phone. Uh, and and I'm a little confused here, and she'll, she'll straighten me out in just a moment, because I thought we were going to be talking about Belly of the Beast, and all my notes are about... Uh, from shadows to life. (laughs) but I have author Judith Judith Pearson with me by phone. Uh, Hi Judy, welcome to the show.
0: You you must have gotten an email from about six months ago.
2: (laughs) Well, maybe. That's
0: so funny. Do you want me to send you something else while we chat?
2: Well, that wouldn't, that that would be fine if you wanted to do that, but I think we can uh, kind of wing it. It is Veterans Day, so I did want to at least uh, talk about Belly of the Beast, because this is, is this a historical novel? Is it, um, uh, it's, it is it's actually, based on a true story.
0: It is, that's right. So a novel, of course, is fiction, even if it's based in history, this is, um and, and ironically, my plan was to become the next great American novelist. So I had written <laughs> two two novels, two manuscripts, um, which still live under the bed. And um that plan got diverted twenty years ago and I became a biographer, nonfiction writer. And this was um the reason that I got kind of sidelined, um, my my dad was here for a visit over the holidays, and I took him to a military antique store, and while he was taking a stroll down memory lane, because he was um, a P-29, uh, P-59, excuse me, pilot, the Mustang during World War Two, the owner, who was an acquaintance of mine, showed me this material that he had discovered in a chest of drawers that he had bought <clears throat> there was a bronze star commendation a letter to this guy's family some newspaper clippings that talked about this hellship journey to japan and i i was completely ignorant about what had happened in the pacific theater of world war ii and and you know I was born and raised in Michigan. I think my Michigan education has served me well.
2: Where, where in Michigan?
0: Southwest Michigan, beautiful South Haven.
2: Oh, okay. Okay, because yeah. my show is based in Flint. I don't know if you realize right. that or not.
0: And Well, in my first radio job, I became a school teacher right out of Michigan State. Go green. And my first um, teaching job... Was um, in Lapeer, Michigan. So I, or excuse me. My first teaching job was in my in Lapeer. My first radio job. I then jumped to radio because, of course, why wouldn't you? Um, was in Flint at. Um, oh, with my mind has just gone
2: thirteen thirty W. TRX. TRX. AM thirteen thirty. Yeah, there yeah. was the. Uh, there were a lot of great people there. Dave Barber, Johnny and Burke, Johnny Burke, and. Yep. Michael J. Thorpe and,
1: and
2: yep. the list goes on and on. All right. Well, <coughs> Judy. So go, yeah, sorry, go go. I, I was gonna say, you know, go on with this. How, how did? What was it about this particular story? How did you find out about this so, this boat?
0: So what I think is so interesting. Um, and and it's no different today than it was a few years ago when I was um, in school. We're taught that World War II for America began um, with the December 7th bombings, and it's now 80 years uh, this December 7th. Um, So we're taught that it began with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and that it ended with um, the atomic bombs being dropped on the home islands of Japan. But the whole vast middle of the Pacific War is pretty much omitted. We we have a name for the evil that existed in Europe. It was the Nazis. And, um, you know, great stories about, uh, of course, the D-Day landings, My second book, in fact, was the first biography written about um, an amazing American woman who went on to become um, a spy and the architect of the resistance in central France, and she only had one leg, so that made the story even more interesting, but the fact of the matter is that while there were two million Americans um, who were in the military in Europe, there were six 15,112,566 Americans who served in the Pacific, like eight times as many, and the geography was so huge. So I thought it was really interesting in this realization that I didn't know anything about this. Um, I didn't know about the POWs, I didn't know about the Philippines or the, the Battle for Bataan and the Bataan Death March. So my father, I always say to people, my father was a very religious man. He began most of his emphatic statements with some religious epitaph. So because this is a family show, I'll just say, Daddy, did you know about this? And he said, oh, my God, it was horrible. So um, when the Imperial Japanese Army attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, they actually attacked a total of seven locations that day, in addition to Pearl, Guam, Wake Island, Malaya, Hong Kong, Midway Island, and the Philippines were attacked. And some of those are across the international date line. So it was actually December 8th. And um, and I I really stress that it was the Imperial Japanese military who did this the japanese people did not attack us the military had been working for decades to wrest government control away from the civilians and separate the emperor from you know day-to-day stuff and by 1931 they had done that they acted independently and they invaded manchuria and china they wanted um, they created what they called the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere telling the people of Asia that it would be much better to get rid of all the Western influence and um, lead Asia into self efficiency self-sufficiency but in reality their agenda was no different than the Nazis it was just domination and in the imperial Japanese military's case it was domination of the Far East and so all those attacks on December 7th and 8th were were a part of that.
2: Part of a coordinated effort Uh, we always we always look at the bombing uh, at Pearl Harbor as um, you know an intentional intentional attack. One and done. Yeah and it marks sort of America being drawn into the war.
0: Right, right. And and it, it was indeed that. Um, and when I wrote my second book about the European theater, I came to realize that while um, Churchill really wanted FDR to, to get us involved much sooner than we did, um, it was the attack on our soil, because Hawaii was a, an American territory, so it was an attack on our soil that led us into that.
2: And well, and, the and Je- there are some people in the foil hat crowd who think that uh, <laughs> Roosevelt wanted to get in and needed an excuse and somehow ignored warnings about the uh, December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor. True. That's true. <laughs> I'm sure uh, you've read true. some of those uh, Yeah
0: some of not those conspiracy true that that's theories. Exactly not true that that's exactly what his motivation was, but I certainly have. And and one of the one of my favorite and most wonderful um Pacific theater movies is Tora Torah Torah. And I think that came out like in seventy two or seventy three. And if you watch that, it was really just a number of missteps where memos got missed, it was over a weekend, people were on leave, it was Hawaii, so what could possibly happen? And that was sort of the the mentality in the Philippines as well. The man I wrote about, Estelle Myers, um, the Philippines was not unlike Hawaii. It was just this gorgeous, lavish, tropical place for these young guys to live out their military enlistment, and they were loving it and didn't expect it all, even though it was Monday in the Philippines when the attack happened, they they didn't expect it at all. Myers was a, a naval corpsman, and so he worked in the hospital in Manila, but you know, his shift was really laid back. Show up at eight, have a long lunch, go back till about two, and then start ordering my Tai. <laughs> it was a good <laughs> gig. <clears throat> um,
2: you know, you mentioned uh, Estelle Myers, and and that's who this particular story follows. How were you able to gather information, being that he has already passed away?
0: Well, and it, it, it was interesting. And to, In uh, 1998, when I began the, the research, um, the Internet wasn't nearly as robust as it is today. So it was really a scavenger hunt. I live in Phoenix. We have a wonderful central library that I just, I spent a lot of time there um, and digging through old-time magazines and um, other books. But the real boom came. So, really, there were two sources that were really, really invaluable. One, um, through Myers' obituary, I discovered that he had a brother living here in Phoenix. Myers, too, had moved to Phoenix, even though they were all from uh, Kentucky. So, I hunted down his brother, and Ken was extremely helpful in filling in. All of the family parts, and in discussing um, Estel, both prior to being captured and then when he was finally released. But the second really amazing source was an organization called the American Defenders of the Tan and Corregidor. And for um, for the listeners to kind of wrap their minds around the Philippines, um, they there's a main island, but then there are I don't know how many dozens of other little islands, little satellite islands, and Corregidor was one of those at the southern tip of the um, main island. In addition, Batan is a um, um, is a peninsula that kind of juts south, and there's a small.
2: Um, Judy,
0: between.
2: I, I hate to interrupt, but I. I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around? This is a fascinating story, and I want to talk some more I about
0: would it. love to. Thank okay. you.
2: My guest is uh, Judith Pearson, author of uh, Belly of the Beast, and we're going to talk about that more on this Veterans Day edition of the Tom Sumner program after we let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in.
4: Everybody's doing a brand-new dance now.
5: Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
0: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
2: And welcome back, everybody. We continue our uh, Veterans Day edition of the Tom Sumner program talking about a uh, true story uh, in a new book called Belly of the Beast, a POW's true story of faith, courage, and survival aboard a World War II hell ship ship by judith pearson and judy joins me by phone hi judy welcome back thanks for sticking around sorry to make you sit through all that
0: no problem no problem it's great to hear the ads and i love tim allen's voice on the visit genesee <laughs> county ad <laughs>
2: well, isn't it great it, it's it's yeah. fun to hear tim allen um and he's done a bunch of those uh, pure michigan <laughs> right. spots yep. from all I love over it. um but let me let me ask about this um the title of the book says Courage and Survival Aboard a World War II Hell Ship. That sounds like there were more than one.
0: There were. There were. And just to wrap up what I was saying, when the Japanese attacked, the military um, retreated into Bataan and Corregidor, but Myers because he was a corpsman along with some other corpsmen and doctors remained in the manila hospital to stay with patients who couldn't be moved so they became some of the very first american pow's um, in early january 1942. Um, as the war went on the japanese the imperial military realized that they were running out of Personnel. They had, by this time, begun their kamikaze campaigns, both planes and ships. And so, but they had this vast wealth of, of labor for their mines and their factories in the POWs. So they began moving them, shoved into the holds of tankers, but they weren't marked. They, um, the allied uh, air forces didn't know that they were carrying humans, let alone their fellow citizens and fellow service members. And so they were bombed. One sank completely, only four survived. The Orioku Maru that Myers was put on was the last hell ship to leave uh, Manila with 1,619 POWs aboard in December of 1944, and it was bombed before they ever got out of the Manila Harbor. They were dragged out, put onto two more boats. Those boats were bombed when they got as far as Taiwan, then called Formosa, and when they were finally, when they finally made it to their destination in Japan, of that 1,619, um, only 400 remained.
2: And as, aside from that that high death count, how did these ships become called Hell Ships? Was it about the treatment that the prisoners were getting?
0: Absolutely. Um, by this time, after three years of prison camp living with hardly any rations, I mean, they were eating everything they could find, so they were extremely malnourished, um, riddled with disease, and then shoved into the holds of these ships so crowded that if a man died, he couldn't fall down. There was no air, there was no water, there were no sanitary provisions. It it was just horrific. And they were wearing rags because they were in, and had been living in this tropical um, locale, the Philippines, but by the time they got to Japan in, in January of 1945, it was winter. So the further north they went, men started uh, contracting pneumonia and just flat out dying of exposure. It was it was just the most horrific experience one could imagine. You know, it's- and the men. I just wanted to add the yeah, men who I met, the veterans who had founded this organization, the American Defenders of Vatan and Corregidor, I interviewed them. They, they were aboard the ship and in the prison camp with Myers. So although I follow Myers, it's really a book. It's every man's story who was a part of um, the prison and hellboat experience.
2: You know, you mentioned the 80th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and and other places, as you explained. Um, and in all that time, a lot of uh, our reflection about World War II really revolves around the Nazis and their concentration camps and the extermination of Jewish people, the Holocaust. And lately, you and other writers are talking about uh, some of the brutality of the the Japanese soldiers. Um, it, it, let's talk about that a little bit. Why why has it taken so long for some of the stories of Japanese brutality of prisoners um, to emerge? Is it is it in part because of uh, American guilt over what we would call today collateral damage of the dropping of atomic bombs?
0: I think I think that it was a combination of a, of a number of things. Um, it and and the German people were ready to move on as well. They didn't want to keep rehashing. Um, The Nazis who had escaped, they they wanted it to be over. Um, The Japanese felt the same way. The Japanese people um, were humiliated by when they discovered what had happened to the prisoners, and and, um, they were humiliated by that. But there was a great threat of communism both in Europe and in the Pacific, and it was important for those countries who had been our enemies or those people groups who had been our enemies in the countries in which they lived it was important to build those countries back up build the the population's um stamina back up so that they would not be ripe for the taking by the communist countries and Tom, I think this is really interesting if you really stop to think about the um, parallels between uh, World War II and the Afghanistan experience that is just ending. A big part of, of the problem overall in both cases is the misunderstanding of culture. In Japan, the Japanese military um follow the th- followed um, the bushido code which were which was a code named an, an honor tradition named for the 11th century bushi warriors which meant quite simply that you fall on your sword you're willing to die with your superior for your superiors for your country there is no surrender so when the american generals surrendered the remaining troops in the Philippines, the Japanese, they couldn't wrap their minds around it. They just thought, well, these people are crazy. These are not even humans, they're dogs. And so that's part of the reason why the Imperial military was so brutal to our POWs. But again, it was was their culture. And the same is true, I think, in the Middle East, it's very hard for our, us to understand those countries but they don't understand us either. And um when I when this book was published it was October of 2001, 3 weeks after 9/11. The book was already in production when 9/11 happened. But the fact that that was yet another um unprovoked attack on America
2: well a lot of similarities were drawn between yeah. that and uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor
0: that's right um, and, and, but mostly and, that was um,
2: because of of size and surprise
0: yep and two days after 9/11 my eldest son left for his first Air Force assignment so you know my father had been in World War two my son now was off to do I had no idea what. I'm happy to say 20 years later he just retired uh, as a counterintelligence um agent and um there's obviously a great deal of of pride involved in that as well but the parallel between those two stories I think is pretty interesting.
2: It it is and and um I I didn't realize that this book had been out uh this long but it's and and i
0: i am re-releasing it um it was no longer in print and i wanted to get it back into print it was available digitally and um audiobook but not in print so it has a new forward it has some new material um and i'm very proud of it
2: and and this is um an interesting book to me because i am really only recently beginning to find out about some of the brutality of the Japanese army and and the um, prisoner of war treatment by them. Um, You know, up until fairly recently, Judy, my impression of, uh, you know, Japanese POW camps comes from uh, Alec Guinness and (laughs) and the River Kwai. There you go, yeah. And it's almost like a rom-com compared to yeah. what you and other people are sharing in in your books and and in recounting some of these uh, some of these stories i don't want to say that are lesser known but are new to to quite a few of us
0: that's right that's right and again it was it was partially because there wasn't an, a name to give the evil in japan like there was in Germany, there wasn't a Nazi moniker. So all we kept saying was the Japanese attack, the Japanese did this, the Japanese did that. And the imperial military um, told the Japanese people that if America ever got to their shores, horrible things would happen. And they went on to describe what would happen. So the Japanese public was ready to fight uh, and stand strong until the last man, woman, and child. And again, because our sensibility, our military just saw that the atomic bombs, yes, caused a great deal of collateral damage, but, but landing on the Japanese shores and fighting you know, our way through the country would have killed many more Japanese and Americans and
2: allies. How did you get all of the information together for this to be as detailed a telling as it is? Was it from the interviews with people, uh, with uh, survivors and veterans who had had experienced some of these things? Or was it uh, from diaries and letters or all of the above?
0: It was a lot of these men um, felt, although although we think that it was the Vietnam veterans who were who first felt unappreciated when they were coming home, and that of course was true. But a lot of these men, by the time they got home, the bombs were dropped in August. Um, the The official. Surrender happened in um, early September. These men didn't get home until November and December, and America had moved on. And so they were they were really kind of the forgotten veterans of that war. So many of them wrote their own books, wrote, kept some had actually, this just blows my mind, and this was true in <clears throat> uh, Nazi prison camps as well, they actually kept diaries that made it out of the camps. But they wrote their own books, They which they were happy to sell at the uh, American Defenders of the Tan and Corregidor um, convention, so I bought every one of those. Um, I did, uh, as I mentioned earlier, interview a great many of them. They were willing to talk, but a lot of the widows of men who had come home but then had died because the body can only sustain so much deprivation. And these men died, a lot of them, you know, in their 40s and 50s. And a lot of the widows said, I'm here because he would never talk about it. I want to know what happened to him. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, it was it was so very sad. But the fact of the matter, Tom, is I'm such a research geek. I love researching. <laughs> and, and, in fact, at one point, um, my agent said, stop researching and start writing. <laughs> <laughs> I just, funny. I couldn't help myself. There was also, and and the new forward in this book is, um, was, I was so thrilled to have the former naval medicine historian write the forward to this book. There is a wonderful um, just collection. It's not even a museum. It's just, there's a room of files and books. And he was the, naval medicine historian, and he just gave me free reign. So I was holding in my hands prison rules that had been typed by the Japanese and, you know, the original copies. So the interviews, um, the books, and certainly all of this material um, at the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, was it. I was able to put it together
2: you know we've talked a, a couple times judy about uh, the 80th anniversary of december 7th coming up a lot of 80th anniversaries with regard to world war 2 are unfolding all through the the year and into next year but um well actually <laughs> the, the next 4 or 5 years that's right um it's in and, and we talked about september 11th and and uh uh, the troops returning from Afghanistan, and cultural differences and so on. Why is it important to to tell more of these 80-year-old stories?
0: The old adage is always, we study history so as not to repeat it. And that is a quaint way to describe it, but it's also true. But yet, were, but
2: yet we keep making the same mistakes.
0: We do. We, ha- we aren't studying hard enough, apparently. <laughs> but it's very, it's, it's very true. It, I, think, I think that's why these stories need to continue to be told. We look back at World War II, which for some, um, I'm sure in your listening audience, that's ancient history. I mean, those people are dying at a now very fast rate. But what happened, the way that Europe was taken over and the Pacific, the East Asia was taken over, was simply, it has simply been repeated in the Middle East. And I think that's really, it's a cautionary tale. It's always, humankind always wants to better itself. And for some people, that means doing so at the expense of others. And that's the lesson we have to learn. Not to mention the fact that if, um, if my parents, if their lives were molded by what happened during World War II, and they shared that with me, and then I've retold stories and shared it with my children, it, it shapes who we are. And those things, we need to have national pride. We need to remember those who sacrificed Um, and my my son again as i said he retired from a 20-year career he was not injured uh, in two deployments but he spent a year and a half away from his family during that time so that's during for deployments. so that's that's a um something to be and he was just one of tens of thousands who did so so i think it's important that we recognize the sacrifices that our military has made and continues to make because a country needs a strong military.
2: Is is there something about our attraction, and I'm talking about the general public, in reading um, retelling of stories of, of people from World War One, World War II, uh, Korea um, as we read these stories, and now Vietnam, of course, is is working its way into history. Um, <clears throat> is our fascination with those stories a way of maybe normalizing some of our contemporary horrors?
0: I suppose possibly, but
2: I mean, that sounds a little callous, and I don't mean it to, <clears throat> but I just wonder if there isn't something. That makes us feel like things are, are maybe not quite as horrible as they are if we realize that horrors have been around forever.
0: That's true. that's true. and And one of the things that bad stories and horrible stories allow us to do um, is hopefully, as we as we see the courage of those who went into battle, We can, at some point in time, if we're called to stand up, if there's a need for us to be courageous, we look at those stories and think, wow, if they could do that, I can do this. Storytelling is an ancient, ancient art. It's the way that we received, that humans received education and news um, right up almost until the 20th century. Um, There were storytellers even in the late 19th century who went across the American West long before there was electricity and wireless and all those kinds of things. So storytelling is important because we learn to be brave and courageous. And it's important that we're courageous in our everyday lives, even if it's simple courage. And And it's important that we recognize the value of one another's lives and lend a hand. And those things, I mean, these young men and women who have gone into foreign lands, Sure, they're in the military, and they're told to do so by superior officers, but they also are doing it because they think it's the right thing to do, and learning what the right thing to do is, is important for the continuation of the human
2: race. Well, and also, I think storytelling, like you've done in this book, um, Belly of the Beast, is a much better way to study history than names and dates and battles. Absolutely. Absolutely places.
0: Absolutely, because you can identify. I mean, Myers was basically the same age as my kid was when he enlisted, you know, it's, and so you identify with that, or you think about the people you know from um, your youth, um, although I know, Tom, you're a very young man, but um, a <laughs> few years ago when you were 18 or 19, you know, you think about the guys that said, I'm going into the military, and so yeah, you identify with them. And again, that's important. Identifying with others who've been courageous, who've stepped out of their comfort zone, it's important.
2: Judy, we're almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Oh, you bet. (laughs)
0: You go to Pearson. P E A R S O N dot com. You will find the prologues to all of my books, links uh, to purchase them. Anyone uh, can request a book plate for free. I'm not guaranteeing that it'll increase the value of the book, but I'll put your name in it and sign mine, <laughs> and you can stick it in the front of your book. And I love to connect. There's, there's pictures of my office and my 100-pound office assistant who's laying faithfully at my feet right now. And I'd love to to hear from people. Social media on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Judith P. Wright.
2: Well, Judy, thanks so much. It's been fun talking with you, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Another book is in the works.
2: (laughs) All right. Take care. That was uh, Judith Pearson. The book is uh, that we were talking about for uh, Veterans Day is Belly of the Beast, a POW's true story of faith, courage, and survival aboard a World War II hell ship. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Hello there, citizens.
1: Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
2: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
1: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
5: I was in the service. Uh, Oh, and I might say that I was in the toughest outfit of them all. I was in the naval... Naval Air Force. Oh, oh. Ever try forcing air through a naval?
1: <laughs>
5: I'll never forget my first day first day out of sea. I went up to the captain, I said, Captain, he said, What? I said, is it all right, sir, if I go downstairs and get something to eat? He said, if you go downstairs, how long have you been in the Navy, sailor? I said, well, six weeks, sir. He said, well, for your information, downstairs on board ship is below deck. And for your further information, that's port, that's aft, that's starboard, and that's port. And if you ever make a stupid mistake like that again, I'll throw you through one of those little round windows over there.
1: <laughs>
5: I was just kidding about that. But I, wasn't, I did I try to do my best in the, in the service. I mean, like a lot of you gentlemen here in the audience tonight, same as I, you must have received a, a little card in the Second World War at one time or another from the late President Roosevelt. He says, please come to our war. <laughs> I thought a president of the United States was nice enough to write to me, I ought to be nice enough to let him look, look me over anyway. And I went down to the indu- induction center. A bunch of us got on a bus. I was living in chick fil New York at the time, and was in the dead of winter, and we got on this bu- bus and went to this big building, an old post office building, bare as all get out. Great, uh, larger than this room, and, and uh, we walk in the room, the first thing is to take, take off all your clothes. Well, we all took them off and hung them up on the nail. We were standing around there so cold, no pockets, no place for our hands. And uh, you couldn't help but be reminded of that famous quotation of one of our greatest presidents. All men are created equal. (laughs) I could give him a little argument in that department. They lined all of us up in front of this big, long, cold, marble bench and said, Sit down. (laughs) Sounded like a bunch of people applauding. got around to the last doctor and gave him my my paper, and he looked at it and he took a big rubber stamp, stamp and he hit down on the paper and it was a big big four, and I figured well I'm going to be four, four F. So he picked up another stamp and he hit on the paper and it had a big e, e on it, and I said uh, he said there you are son four four E. I said well excuse me sir I know what four F, F stands for but the E has me confused. He said, the E merely means even. I said, even? He said, yes. I said, even what? He said, even if there's an invasion, don't come.
1: This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
4: Streets below. Oh, I got the message from my baby, telling me she don't wanna live it with me no
1: more.
4: She sent me a. Email on my computer Text on my telephone Anyway she can get in touch with me To tell me She wasn't coming home No Look at her my window I'm looking down On the streets below